Father in heaven, we're asking that you'll open our eyes, and we ask that you also open our ears. As we look at truth, as we listen to truth, we know it's only truth if it comes from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be in this room. We do not want to be confused. We don't want to go down all the wandering roads that seem to be out there. We really want to be on your path, and we pray that you will keep us on that path today. We're coming to you because we want to see Jesus. We want to see him in his beauty as revealed in the Word of God, as supported by the spirit of prophecy as well. May we see Christ, our righteousness, and understand just what you're trying to do for us in these last days. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a book came to me, and I don't particularly recall how, except that I know that it wound up on my desk. I recall that it probably had, uh, had been actually handed out by our ministerial director. I was one of those in the office who received the book. Because so many books come my way, and I'm a slow reader, and the book was this book, and it's this thick, I basically dismissed the idea of reading it because I figured I'd need about six months. We need more materials and folders. Uh, you probably ought to do 10. Okay, thank you. Yeah, all, all materials, including today's materials. So at any rate, I got this book, and here it is sitting on my shelf for literally some years, paying no attention to it, title didn't catch my attention because I just saw the thickness of the book and didn't really pay any attention to it. As I told you yesterday, I got a phone call from one of our young pastors, and he said, have you read, and it was from a different, same author but a different book, these two chapters in, in, uh, in this individual's book, in Ron Duffield's book, to be clear. And I said, no, but I said, if you're going to challenge me to read them and there's a good reason to, I'm going to read them. So I got a hold of the book and bought the book and found, as I told you yesterday, I already had a copy in my library. Not a good sign, really, uh, of how this was all going, but I uh, picked up those two chapters and I read them. By the way, the one who called me, his name is Mark Howard. And if you haven't been going to his class in the morning, I really want to encourage you to do so. He called me and he asked me about that and I picked up the book, I started to read it, and I said, wait a minute, this is fantastic. And if this is here, I need to find out who else is reading this. And as I started asking around the office, uh, some had said, yes, we've read it, but none of us had discussed it. We'd read it, and so I wondered, you know, you have to wonder, well, they read it, did they like it, did they not like it, you know, just exactly what. And as I got into it a little further, we began to realize that not only we read it, but we'd also been moved by it, and that God obviously was doing something that we needed to pay attention to. And that was the beginning in about the last year of the journey that I'm sharing with you now. Today's title is The Return of the Latter Rain, but I do have some statements I need to make as we begin today. Because what we do in the next few days is going to be very important, but I need to make some provisions for what we're about to do. I would like to share some cautions with you. I think as you see from our discussion today, as we go through it, that this is a story of a major, major struggle in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I wanna share five points with you today to help us to understand what cautions we need and what parameters we need. First of all, we need to understand that we are searching for the truth about Christ our righteousness and righteousness by faith. I want you to know that there's a lot of ideas out there about what that is and what it isn't, but we're looking for the truth. 
Number two, we are not looking for ways or points to condemn other people, past or present. That's not part of this journey. The Spirit of Christ does not condemn. Jesus made that clear in John chapter 3. He did not come to condemn the world, but He came to save the world. And that's what we're all about. I am going to share some things today that might sound as though they're condemnatory, but they're historical fact, clearly delineated in history, not intended to come to any conclusions in regard to those individuals, and particularly in regard to Uriah Smith. But we must understand these pieces that are there because they are cautions for us today. So far, we've only discussed history. Today and tomorrow, we will also look at history, but we will be blending some theology in it. As we go through what we're talking about today, you will pick up, as you did from yesterday, some of the theology that is in what we are discussing. You cannot be discussing Christ without theology. It is the discussion of God. That's what we're all about, and Christ is right at the center of all of that. The theology, though, is both simple and complicated. We have made it, God has made it simple. We have made it complicated. Be careful in your study. Search for the truth, not someone else's position. The devil wants to take us down the wrong road, and I assure you that there are an awful lot of side roads to take in this discussion. And the last point that I want to share with you is the truth will set us free and prepare us for Christ's return. Error will destroy God's church and His people and will prevent us from being ready when Jesus comes. We need to know what it is that God is preparing us for. And we need to know the truth about what God is trying to share with us. I do want to remind you that there was a general conference session that took place in 1888 in Minneapolis. It took place in October of that year and also November. As we pointed out in yesterday's presentation, there were three classes of people, according to A.G. Daniels, who attended that Minneapolis session. The first class accepted the message. The second class was confused and neither accepted nor rejected the message. And the third class rejected the message, feeling that it would undermine the work of the church in spreading the truth about obedience to the commandments. The challenge today is that we seem to be still in one of these three classes. And in my mind, most are in the second class confused about the whole thing, and wonder why we're even needing to talk about it. And we will come to more on that later. For now, we need to remember that there was a GC session in 1888 in Minneapolis. Central to that session were Bible lectures at the Ministerial Institute before the General Conference session and during that session that were presented by two individuals, one by the name of A.T. Jones and the other by the name of A.E.J. Wagner. So now I'd like to kind of get into the meat of today. I'm not going to talk about that session today. I'm going to talk about the aftermath to that session. A lot has been said about that session, and there's a lot that could be said about that session. I do want you to understand that as you study this topic, if you want to call it that, of 1888, we need to realize it wasn't just 1888. It was 1888 and the years that followed. There are some individuals who would like us to believe that we cannot know what the message was that was presented in 1888. The evidence is anything but that. The evidence is clear that there were truths that were shared then, and much of it can be re, uh, reconstructed, partly because it was reconstructed in different materials that came out later from material that was uh, that stenographers copied during that day. They didn't have audio recorders in those days. They had stenographers. And they had stenographers taking uh, copies of material, including E.J. Wagner's wife, who was a stenographer that took down his lectures. 
and some of those came out in book form later. More on that as, as we get to that. But the, mess, the experiences that happened later after that session also continue to give us evidence of what that message was that was shared in 1888 and that continued to be shared and continued to blossom into the message that Ellen White called the third angel's message. So I remind you of the statement that Ellen White made in Testimonies to Ministers, page 91 and 92. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through Elder Jones and Wagner. The message was, uh, was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure, in a large measure. That message began to blossom and began to be shared. Following the 1888 general conference session, there were a number of camp meetings that took place. There were a number of sessions that happened. One of them was in a place called Potterville, Michigan. Anybody know where Potterville is? Yeah, down right around Lansing, just south of Lansing. You live in Potterville? Near Potterville, you live in Charlotte, don't you? Just north of you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, in November of 22, uh, from November 22 to 27 in 1888 in Potterville, Michigan, Ellen White uh, was invited there with uh, a by, I'm sorry, Brother Van Horn. She had hoped that her presence would remove prejudice against Jones and Wagner who were also invited there. She spoke there mainly about Minneapolis. A.T. Jones spoke three times. He spoke two times about religious liberty and the church and state battle that was going on right at that time. And he also spoke about the need for the third angel's message to be given. That's a little bit of what was taking place then. As a result of those meetings, Van Horn spoke very positively of the meetings. Ellen White's take was just a little different than that. She said Minneapolis, and speaking about it in that, uh, in that place, was cruelty to the Spirit of God. The language she uses in the years that followed 1888 and Minneapolis is absolutely amazing. And it cannot help but get our attention. She continued, she said that she hoped that these meetings, the ones in Potterville, would make a difference, but that the position of Elder Butler and Elder Smith influenced them to make no change, but stand where they did. No confession was made, the blessed meeting closed, many were strengthened, but doubt and darkness enveloped some closer than before. Did you catch that? 1888 um, General Conference has concluded just a few weeks before. They have now transitioned from Minneapolis. Ellen White and Jones and Wagner have transitioned over to Potterville. While they're in Potterville, these messages are being shared. But instead of it breaking down the barriers or, re or removing them entirely, some saw it as a very positive experience but people like Butler and Smith continued to entrench themselves in their resistance to the, the message that was being shared. They resisted the work of Jones and Wagner, and you can only get into the depth of all of this, folks. I only can touch the surface in what we're doing. Um, and you have to read the book, and it's fascinating to read. So it looks daunting, but it's not. It's history, and it's there. By the way, when you read this book, not if you read this book, when you read this book, read all of it. 
the footnotes especially, because the footnotes are, the, are, are so revealing. It is vital to understanding what's going on, and uh, just, just got to do it. But at any rate, so Ellen White uh, was concerned about what happened. There was no confession that was made. She says, the blessed meeting closed. Many were strengthened, but doubt and darkness enveloped some closer than before. That's not really good news. Following that came Battle Creek, Michigan, not very far away. But of course, if you had to do it on horseback or on a buggy, it was a ways, especially if you had to do that in winter. And of course, this was a week of prayer there scheduled for December. Probably winter was uh, in at least pretty good swing at that time. There was a week of prayer that was scheduled for December 15 to 22, but on December 13, two days before that week of prayer was to begin, A.T. Jones, who was the religious liberty, I'll call him the secretary, I don't know if he had that title at that particular time, for the General Conference, testified before Congress of the United States of America against what was known to be the Blair Bill, named after uh, Senator Blair, who was promoting that we needed to take the United States into uh, a religious experience that included Sunday laws that, in, that made it a law to go to church on Sunday and to close stores, etc., etc. I don't remember all the details of that bill, but that was the basic thrust of it. As a result of his testimony before Congress, the bill was defeated. Ellen White, and the, in the context of this, warned that they were nearing the close of probation. Messages about religious liberty and the righteousness of Christ were making a difference. You see this by what was printed in the review and what was spoken, spoken from the pulpit. I really want you not to miss this key ingredient. There were two things happening simultaneously, and that should get your attention today. Simultaneously, things were happening in the world that were helping the Seventh-day Adventist Church to know that Revelation 13 and Revelation in general was rapidly being fulfilled. At the same time, the message of righteousness by faith was coming to the forefront in a most powerful way, a very precious message that God's people had to have. It only makes sense. If God is preparing his people for the end, he has to have the people ready. The message comes in order to prepare them to be ready. At the same time that he's preparing them to be ready, what is happening? The world is disintegrating. The world is coming to a point where the prophecies will meet their point of fulfillment. That is what was happening at that time. I hope that you get that connection through this study. And uh, according to, by the way, when you see this little scenario down here, do you understand what that is? The return of the latter rain. I'm abbreviating so I don't have to type it out every time. This is found on page 195, and this is what, uh, uh, what he says. This is Duffield speaking here. He says, the 1888 message presented by Jones and Wagner was very closely connected with the subject of religious liberty and the work of the Holy Spirit preparing a people to stand in the day of God. The fact that Sunday laws were closer to being enacted than at any other time in American history was powerful and compelling. Evidence right up here, uh, Shelley. Raise your hand if you needed notebooks, uh, folders, and uh, materials. Thank you. The fact that Sunday laws were closer than, uh, to being enacted than any other time in American history was powerful and compelling evidence that God had begun, catch this, to pour out the latter rain. All right, this is key. Thank you, Shelley. That's fine. Very, very much. The message of Christ our righteousness and that the loud cry was about to go forth with unprecedented power. Now, I want you to begin to pick up these pieces that are coming here. Have you been praying for the latter rain? Yep. Have you wondered why the latter rain is not coming? 
have you realized that the latter rain has already started? That's why the title of this book should get our attention. It's not when is the latter rain going to come, it's what? The return of the latter rain. Because we should be very clear that the work of the latter rain, and that's what I'm sharing with you in the next few days here, is that the latter rain already started back in 1888. All right? So I'm making that real clear now, but over the next two days, I will help to make that especially clear. Understand what's going on here. Ellen White makes it real clear. I'll come to this again. She makes it real clear that our understanding of what to expect with the latter rain has been incorrect. We, many people were thinking it would happen in a few days or maybe whatever. She said it would happen over an extended period of time. Why? Because God is preparing his people and it takes time to do that. But we're waiting for some miraculous thing like happened in Pentecost where the tongues of fire come and Ellen White makes it clear that's not the way it's happening at the end. That needs to be getting our attention. This is one of the lights that turned on my mind when I started to read this. I'd missed that. I hadn't caught that. I hadn't seen it. But it was right there all the time. So in Battle Creek, Michigan, this is what happened. This is very significant, what happens here in Battle Creek to W.W. W. Prescott. Remember I mentioned to you about Armadale? Armadale I spoke yesterday about, and I said I'm going to come to that story in a couple of days. I will come to you, but it could not have happened if Battle Creek hadn't happened because Prescott was on the wrong side of the message in Indianapolis, Minneapolis, I'm sorry. He had been fighting the message. And the message of A.T. Jones that was spoken in Battle Creek led Prescott to confess and become contrite. Others also responded in Battle Creek to this message and, uh, and was similar to what Prescott responded. It seemed, said Ellen White, that the whole company was on the move. She's speaking of the result of the meeting when A.T. Jones brought this message. Prescott responded by saying, I've been wrong. I haven't seen this. I'm now understanding this. Other people began to respond. Ellen White's recounting of it, it seemed like everybody was, the whole company was on the move. The Spirit of God was coming into that meeting and it changed people like Prescott. Because of it, the fact it changed Prescott, it began a significant work that led to his time in Australia as well. But let it be understood that there was still opposition. One of the things that Ellen White said is e, uh, that woe, and I left out some of that there, it's found on in, uh, in Duffield's book, page 192, woe upon all such unbelief and criticism as re revealed in Minneapolis and Battle Creek. By the way, this is a lot of the material that I'm sharing with you is also in your notes. All right, so I didn't expect you to have to buy the book, but if you don't, I, you know, I'm, nobody's making any money on this. I don't want you to know you need to read this book, all right? <laughs> I mean, you really have got to read this book. Do you think we should read the book? Um, who asked that question? <laughs> I, I think you should read the book, yes, okay. <laughs> the opposition was there, but the Lord was not done with his church. Following this, Duffield makes this statement. He says, at the very heart of the work in Battle Creek, there was opposition to the heaven-sent light. Instead of the brethren preparing the way for the loud cry and latter rain, they were interposing themselves between God and His work. The very spirit which leads worldly men to pass laws that restrict liberty of conscience was also active in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Unless something changed, the result would be fatal hardness of heart. The reason that Duffield makes that statement is because the leaders who were opposed to the message, especially the teaching of Jones and Wagner at that time, were trying to prevent Jones and Wagner from being able to preach the message. And it led them to oppose Ellen White as well. And again, I can't get into all the details, but it's going to get real clear before today with at least some of it. 
Now, the interesting thing is that as a result of what happened in Minneapolis, the work of Ellen White and Jones and Wagner continued to spread around by camp meetings. Yay? Camp meeting is a place for the Spirit of God to be poured out. You need to come to camp meeting. Oh, you're already here. Okay. 1888 was followed by 1889. I know that makes a lot of sense. It's simple math, right? But historically, this is what I want you to know. The question is what happened after the message was shared by God's messengers in 1888 helps to be seen in what took place in 1889. That's why we're going to spend a little time reviewing that, which Duffield does in his book more extensively, The Return of the Latter Rain. Was the church the same as it had been, or did revival and re reformation come to the church? Understanding the aftermath of 1888 helps us to realize the importance of the 1888 message. So I'd like to review a little bit of that aftermath and see what history reveals to us. Here are some of those meetings that took place. The first one was in January of 1889, from January 11 to 22. It was again a camp meeting, as all of these sessions really were. We had the same spirit, Ellen White said, and power that attended the first and second angel's message. Did you catch that? The power of the first and second angel's message is what's she talking about? She's talking about 1844. She's talking about the work that went forward that brought about the call for the people to understand that Jesus was coming again. The study of the um, 2300 day prophecy, William Miller and all that. That was the first and second angels messages doing its work. What a powerful work was done by the Spirit of God during that time. Ellen White says of South Lancaster, Massachusetts in 1889, it was just like that. Well, that's pretty remarkable, wouldn't you think? She went on and said, as the message of present truth was presented, however, hearts were melted. We felt the necessity of presenting Christ as a Savior who was not afar off, but night, at, uh, but night was at hand. Thank you. But right was at hand, okay? Oh, right, oh, right at hand, yeah. Night. I got you. I got you. I got you. Take the T off. But nigh at hand. Thank you. I'm glad you read it. Would you all come and type this for me next time? There were men, even among the ministers, who saw the truth as it is in Jesus in a light in which they had never before viewed it. I really wish it had been said slightly different than that. But Ellen White doesn't mince words. Did you notice she said, there were men, even among the ministers? Unfortunately, the ministers were part of the barrier that was going up during this time. The next session that came up was in Chicago, Illinois. From the end of March through early April 1889, there was a camp meeting held in Chicago. Presenters were A.T. Jones and Ellen White. E.G. White's description of the meeting was that, it was that she was deeply grateful for the blessing of God that has come into the meeting here. And then she said, now that the enlightenment of the Spirit of God has come, all regret that they have been so long ignorant that it was true religion to depend entirely upon Christ's righteousness and not upon, upon works of men. There are little hints in these statements of what the conflict was about and what Ellen White was trying to help us with Jones and Wagner, actually Jones and Wagner with Ellen White's support, was trying to help the church come to an understanding about. And that is that the true religion was to depend entirely upon Christ's righteousness and not upon works of men. We Seventh-day Adventists are pretty good about balancing works and law, but we have to admit that it's very easy for us to place a whole lot more emphasis on works than on the righteousness of Christ. And that's exactly what was happening in this particular time. And so these revivals that were taking place at these camp meetings, these messages that were being shared, 
were helping us to get back to where we needed to be because the church had gotten cold. Iowa. Ellen White didn't go there. A.T. Jones did not go there. Why? Because they were not invited. She specifically talked about this fact. She said that they missed out on the blessings that could have been theirs. And she put the blame squarely here. Brothers Morrison and Nicola had run the Iowa conference until there as, uh, uh, as but little life and soul in it. There is but little life and soul in it. What a tragic story what was going on. She speaks about these two individuals later and in some statements she makes about some of the leaders at that time and how they were resisting the message. There's more, as I uh, mentioned there, in uh, The Return of the Latter Rain. But the camp meetings did continue and they did go to Ottawa, Kansas. May 6th to 18, 1889, another camp meeting where Jones was present and Ellen White. This meeting was significant because there was a breakthrough that took place for two ministers there by the names of Porter and Washburn. The Washburn was one who had doubted Ellen White's truthfulness about not having collaborated with Jones and Wagner. <coughs> Let me explain what that was all about. When Jones and Wagner came to the pre-session, what we sometimes have called in, in more modern times, the pre-session to a general conference where ministers will get together. When they came for what was called actually the Ministerial Institute before the Minneapolis General Conference session, Ellen White was supporting what they were saying, Jones and Wagner were teaching, but there was quite a bit of resistance. And some of the ministers got together behind the scenes and said, we know what's going on. Ellen White and Jones and Wagner, they got together and they conspired to bring this message so that it would look like Ellen White was supportive of them and was uh, led by a God to do this. That's, what, that's the attitude that was coming in. Basically, they accused them of one conspiring and of two lying about it. That's what was going on, and that's what was happening here with Washburn. He confessed at this meeting in Ottawa, Kansas, in May of 1889, that he was wrong after listening to those messages. Others also testified to now seeing the light. Many received great blessings. Some continued, though, to rebel. Ellen White recognized that the Lord had visited his people this was Ottawa, Kansas. So the Spirit of God is slowly coming to the people. But the sad part about this is it is the people, the members, who are responding most positively. But the ministers are continuing to put up roadblocks, except for a few of them, such as Washburn and uh, Porter, who in this particular case began to allow a breakthrough of the light to come to them. Um, J.N. Lockborough was one of the longest lived of our pioneers. And he went from camp meeting to camp meeting till the day he died in 19, Ernie, do you remember? Way into the 1900s. But anyway, when he died, um, he, he, what he had done, he had constantly been reminding people of the, of the way the testimonies were shared and all of those kinds of things. And it was because people were still struggling with it. And you know what? People still struggle with it today. And it's the same kind of thing. Yep. It, it's a real challenge that was existing even then among the leaders. They had ex Many of them had accepted her, but this had caused them even to doubt her. And even though they'd accepted her, now they were beginning to wonder. And that undercurrent is going through, and uh, Duffield makes that real clear through here. So that's what's happening along the way. Yes, please. How much of that was? I don't think it was just, I mean, certainly that probably was in there somewhere. But the issue was that they were struggling with these messages and they just could not understand. Smith, 
and Butler just could not understand how what they had been teaching all along was wrong when they believed, they actually believed that Ellen White had supported them earlier and now she was turning on them. And so that was confusing them. Um, you know, in fairness to Butler and, and, uh, and to Morrison and the others, there were reasons they were struggling with this. But it was because they were not being careful Bible students along with the, with the situation. Uh, these are all great questions, folk, and they are at the heart of this. And we have to keep this in mind as we're going through. And there's a reason why there's still confusion today. Um, Butler wrote an article in, uh, in, uh, in talking about some of these camp meetings in the review. And he was a rebuttal to what was being shared at the camp meetings because they felt, Butler and Smith felt they needed to come in rebuttal against Jones and Wagner and the messages they were sharing. And so they uh, shared that through the review, which was the um, social media of the day, all right, in the Adventist church. Butler wrote an article. Look at the titles of these articles. They're significant. The righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. Now, what is, Jones, what is Jones and Wagner preaching? Christ, our righteousness, right? Butler is preaching the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. It will be, he said, a sad day for us as a people if we ever discard the light God has given us relative to our duty to keep in spirit and in letter the moral law of God. You can see a little bit of the undertone. And there's got to be some sympathy there. But we also have to keep in mind why it was a problem. Here's Butler's article that came out on June 11. I'm going to come back to this in just a little bit because this is a little later than, than where we are right at the moment. But it's significant and it plays out in the, uh, in the meetings that took place in Pennsylvania. So he suggested his title, Our Righteousness. You catch that? Our Righteousness. They're talking about Christ, our righteousness. He's talking about our righteousness. I thought, come on, folks, we got some righteousness here, too. We got to get in on this. He suggested that the current teaching was leading down the same path, sorry about the typo again, as the bitter opposers of our cause. He was talking about all the denominations that were opposed to the law and the Sabbath and all that. And I can understand they had fought long, hard battles uh, excuse the word, battles there. And then he said, perfect obedience to it, that is the law, will develop perfect righteousness, and that is the only way anyone can attain to righteousness. Where's Jesus? The opposition still continued, and Ellen White's response to Uriah Smith, G.I. Butler, and Dan Jones, not to be confused with A.T. Jones, who were opposing Jones and Wagner was this. She pointedly told Uriah Smith sometime later that the many and confused ideas in regard to Christ's righteousness and justification by faith are the result of the position you have taken toward the man and the message sent of God. Now we go to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I want to give you just a little bit of a background to this. I happened to notice this um, and, and the historical part of it. It's in the material in, uh, in Duffield just a little bit. But I happened to read many years ago about a terrific flood that took place in a place called Jonestown, Pennsylvania. How many of you ever heard of that flood? Well, guess what? Williamsport and Jonestown are neighboring towns. Okay? The camp meeting of June 5 to 11 in 1889, held in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, immediately followed the devastating and deadly floods in Williamsport and Jonestown, Johnstown, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, which occurred on May 30 to June 1. The death toll in Jonestown was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 people. The death toll in Williamsport was not that high. I think it was maybe about 60 or so. Don't hold me to those numbers, but the devastation was significant. It's amazing to me that they were, number one, able to get in there, and number two, that they had a camp meeting just days after this horrific disaster took place in those communities. But they did. That's what the, the situation was. And their presence was viewed as an encouraging thing to the people in those towns. 
Ellen White spoke positively of the meeting. She said meetings were well attended. She spoke of it as the precious, precious message of present truth that was spoken by brother, Brethren Jones and Wagner. And she said that God has raised up men to meet the necessity of this time who will cry aloud and spare not. Their work is not only to proclaim the law, but to preach the truth for this time, the Lord our righteousness. She wasn't trying to undermine the law, neither were Jones and Wagner, but Butler and Smith were really struggling with that and the other leaders as well. They were having a hard time with that. But she was bringing, as they were, the balance that was needed in regard to this. Duffield's observation about the Williamsport messages um, from Jones, Wagner, and Ellen White is what I'm sharing now at this point. That they placed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus in proper framework with wonderful results. That Ellen White made it clear that the justification by faith had been lost sight of in the Adventist church. That members and leaders were depending on a mere legalistic form. That the Adventist message was the third angel's message in verity, the law and the gospel combined which went beyond the message the reformers taught. And I want you to catch this, because today there is a movement trying to tell us again that the Seventh-day Adventist message is nothing more than justification by faith as taught by the reformers. And Ellen White clearly teaches the opposite about that, but in not the opposite, but a progressive nature of the message. She said this, that it built on the Reformation foundation. It wasn't what they were wrong, they just didn't go far enough in keeping to the fact that we are justified by faith. But in the context of final judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary, which the reformers knew nothing about, but the Seventh-day Adventist message does understand the final judgment, does understand the cleansing of the sanctuary. And in that context, you put the justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ that Christ wants to impute to us, and you get a different result than what you get out of the Reformation. Amen. You get the continued result that Christ needs to have in His people before He can come. I'm hoping you're catching these points because I'm really trying to condense this all so that you don't have to read the book, which you will do anyway, won't you, right? Ellen White spoke of the great blessings received by those who accepted the present truth messages. This was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Now I want to take you to Rome, not Italy, but New York. In June 11 to 1889, each of these are, I'm going to call them symbolic of what was going on in the church at the time, which is why I'm putting the focus here uh, and why Duffield puts the focus here. But he, he, uh, he broadens the scope a little bit. I'm trying to zero in so we get the sense of what was taking place. In the camp, it was another camp meeting there in Rome, New York. The presenters were A.T. Jones and I believe E.J. Wagner. I was trying to find clarity on that, but I believe that he was there, and Ellen White. Ellen White made this statement about this meeting, and notice her words. She was anxious that the grace of Christ should come upon our brethren. There were still challenges going on, and there was an anxiety in her heart about what was going on. And she says she was not disappointed that the Lord sent them special messages of mercy and encouragement. She had a message that she wanted to share there at that particular time. Let me just back up for a quick second. Yeah. Uh, and this is what she said in uh, September 3. Now, this is some time past in reflecting back. She said, there is great need that, the, that Christ should be preached as the only hope and salvation. When the doctrine of justification by faith was presented at the Rome meeting, it came to many as water comes to the thirsty Traveler, Sorry, but I am thirsty right now, and that didn't help any. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, see that? Is imputed to us, not because of any on our part, but as a free gift from God, seemed a precious thought. Huge, significant 
and what we a significance in what we just read there. We will come back to those thoughts later. But though this message would bring an awakening throughout the church, and Satan uh, would bring it, Satan did not want this message clearly presented. Ellen White said. We need to understand the battle that was raging between behind the scenes at this time. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If it was his power, if, um, if it was clearly presented, Ellen White says his power would be broken. Thus he set out, Satan did, to control minds with doubt and unbelief that he might overcome them with temptation. The most effective way that he could do this was through those in leadership positions. Again, I, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'm trying to look back at the history, and it should alert all of us, whether leader or layperson, whether elder in the church, or general conference president, we should all be awake to what is going on in our hearts and our lives today and what Jesus is trying to bring us back to. Because of the significance of this, I want to delve a little bit more in our last 20 minutes into this experience in Rome because I want you to see what was taking place there and what was spoken of. Ellen White wrote a letter to Uriah Smith regarding the June 11, 1889 article that he wrote. And this is what she said. I saw you walked upon a path that almost imperceptibly diverged from the right way. A noble personage stood beside me and said, a noble personage? Who's that? It's an angel standing beside her, right? and said, Uriah Smith is not on the brink of a precipice, but he is in the path that will shortly bring him to the brink, and if he is not warned now, it will soon be too late. How would you like to get a message like that from the servant of God? Saying that an angel told her that. He can now retrace his steps. He is walking like a blind man into the prepared net of the enemy, but he feels no danger because light is becoming darkness to him, and darkness light. Oh, that's, that's just heartbreaking. We will keep going. <laughs> you still will be asking the same question. You still will be asking the same question. And I'm glad I don't know. I, I'll just answer that question. I'm glad I don't know. That's God's problem, isn't it? What I need to do today is I need to make sure that my experience does not end in the ways his might have ended. And we can only pray that his heart was changed before he died. He did a mighty work for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Bernie? Anyway, she continued in, uh, in responding to him, and she said, I awoke and thought it must be daylight, but on lighting the match, <laughs> kind of a little sidetrack, I mean a little inside to what was. She didn't turn the lights on. She lit a match. She looked at her watch. She said, I saw it was only 12 o'clock. This morning, I've read your article in review. Now there was no call whatever for you to write as you did. You place Elder Jones in a false position, just as Elder Morrison and Nicola and yourself and others place him, placed him in at, at Minneapolis. Then she continued on to preach a sermon to the people because she knew that at the Rome um, camp meeting that the article had come out and the people had read it. And as she recognized that they had read this article, she realized that she needed to say something about it. And so in a sermon to the people, knowing they had read Uriah Smith's article, this is what she said. What is God going to do for his people? Leave them with no new light. Ye are, says he, the light of the world. By the way, this is in your material. I want you to know that. Then we are to get more light from the throne of God. 
and have an increase of light. Now we do not tell you in the message that has been given to you here and in other places that it is a grand new light, but it is the old light brought up and placed in new settings. Did it change on me? Nope. There we go. Just prior to the coming of the Son of Man, there is and has been for years a determination on the part of the enemy to cast his hellish shadow right between man and his Savior. I want you to catch those words and think about today. Think about where we are 130 years later and place ourselves in just prior to the coming of the Son of Man. How many of you believe we're just prior to the coming of the Son of Man? But the devil is not going to lay down and just simply say, okay, let it happen. I'm tired of fighting. It's not going to happen. And why? So that he shall not distinguish that it is a whole Savior, a complete sacrifice that has been made for him. Then he tells them that they are not to keep the law. For in keeping the law, man would be united with the divine power and Satan would be defeated. But in keeping that law, man would be united with the divine power. Notwithstanding man was encompassed with the infirmities of humanity, he might become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now here is the redemption. She's blending the connection with Christ and the law and helping to us to understand that it is the full law. But as you and I will discover or rediscover in the next few days, we have had an oversimplistic understanding of the law and grace and the connection that's there. And it's not complicated. It's always been there, but we're the ones who've made it complicated. We're beginning to shed some of the light here. Then, she says, says one, you cannot be accepted unless you repent. Who? I'm sorry, well, who leads us to repentance? Who is drawing us? Christ is drawing us. Angels of God are, God are in this world at work upon human minds. And the man is drawn to the one who uplifts him. And the one who uplifts him draws him to repentance. It is no repentance of his, work of his own. There is nothing that he can do that is of any value at all except to believe. There's a lot of theology there. We will come back to it. And then she continued on. This is the victory. Even your faith, feelings, and good works. Is that it? No. This is the victory. Even your faith. She dropped the works. But don't get the idea that she was destroying, and that's where Butler and others were struggling. So this was her sermon. This was the sermon she preached, but she wasn't done yet. Her sermon that she spoke of here was a reaction to his article, but she did not stop there because she then got very specific and Duffield says the following. She described him in the same condition as that of the Jews. She defended Jones and Wagner and her husband against Smith's misrepresentations. Notice what she says in this paragraph. Brethren, do not let any of you be thrown off the track. Well, you say, what does Brother Smith's piece in the review mean? She knew that they had all read it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He sees trees as men walking. Everything depends upon our be being obedient to God's commandments. Therefore, he takes those that have been placed in false settings and he binds them in a bundle as though we were discarding the claims of God's law when it is no such thing. It is impossible for us to exalt the law of Jehovah unless we take hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Duffield continues by saying she made it clear that she was in full support of the message being given and that it was not contrary to what she had been trying to present before to their minds. Speaking to the congregation in no uncertain terms, she identified the message for what it was. Their light had come. You see, the Spirit of God is being poured out. The light is coming in upon his people, but the devil is fighting against it. He's fighting with everything he has. 
you and I need to understand that we are still in that same battle. You and I must not allow ourselves to just walk down many of the myriads of roads that even get connected to this message. We need to find exactly what God is trying to tell us. That's why we are slowly proceeding here in the Michigan Conference. I'm taking a little bit of a risk in teaching this class, but I'm working very hard not to get ahead of us as a team here in Michigan because we are slowly learning together. I'm not sharing anything with you that in, in, the, in the setting here that we have not all had some conversations in relationship to, but we've still got more work to do, and that means we us, you, and us together as a people, as a church, as your churches meet together. We need to be studying the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy, reviewing this history. One of the wonderful things that comes out of this book is that he has so systematically outlined the history that I do not know of anybody who has questioned his work. He is so thorough. When I talked to Ron Duffield, I said, when's the rest of this coming out? He said, I've got so much stuff, I don't know when I'll ever get it all done. He, I don't know what he's doing, but he must be reading everything that was ever written at that time. I just don't know how this man is able to do it. He is so thorough, so completely thorough. Bernie, do you have the answer to that question? It was 1891, February 7th. 1891. Really appreciate that. We'll come back to that. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. I will come back to that because it is significant. Very important. I'm glad you shared that. Several weeks later, this is what took place. Ellen White, referring to the Rome meetings, encouraged those who received and accepted the light. Then she warned that those who rejected the light would be left in darkness. She warned that Satan was trying to make void the law of God and to trample on the faith of Christ as our righteousness. If the message, she said, was not valued, false theories would come in and Christ and his righteousness would be dropped out of the experience. This camp meeting left Ellen White exhausted and she returned from Rome to Battle Creek. She also made this comment. She said, if you would, could see what Christ is, one that can save to the uttermost all that come unto him by him, come unto God by him, then you would have that faith that works. But must works come first? No, it is faith first. And how? The cross of Christ is lifted up between heaven and earth. The last meeting that I want to refer to was took place in Wexford, Michigan. From what I can tell, I looked up where Wexford is. I can't find Wexford, except that it's a county by, by Cadillac. I don't know if there's actually a community by that name now. I don't know if there was then. I haven't been able to figure that part out. But at any rate, it took place from June 25 to July 2, 1889. She says that the Spirit of the Lord was manifestly at work. But she also says that many refused to be benefited by it. But at the same time, something significant took place. She wrote a 41-page letter written on July 23, 1889, to two ministers of the Michigan Conference. Their names were Madison and Howard Miller, Elder Madison, and doesn't have his first name, and Howard Miller. They were pastors, again, as I said, in Michigan. This is what she said in those statements. She rebuked them and others for not recognizing the movings of the Spirit and for being ever ready, what did I just unplug? Oh, just the power, that's good. And for being ever ready to question and cavil. Some had an unfortunate experience at Minneapolis. Others in their present condition would be a hindrance in any meeting or council. 
just like the unfaithful spies who had no trouble in seeing and presenting obstacles that appeared insurmountable in the way of the advancement of the people of God. She told them that the Lord has committed to us a message full of interest and that it is far-reaching in its influence as he, as far-reaching in, in its influence as eternity. We have tidings to give to the people which should bring joy to their souls. She told them that it was not for them to choose the channel through which the light shall come. The Lord desires to heal the wounds of his sheep and lambs through the heavenly balm of the truth that Christ has in Christ is our righteousness. Their actions were similar to that of the Jews. They were rejecting Christ in the person of his messengers, yet they were less excusable than were the Jews. For we have before us their example. And then in this context, she said, those who live just prior to the second coming, second appearing of Christ may expect a large measure of his Holy Spirit. But if they do not watch and pray, if God has ever spoken by me, some of our leading men are going over the same ground of refusing the message of mercy. If they turn away from the light, they will fail to meet the high and holy claims of God for this important time. They will fail to fill the sacred responsibility that he has entrusted to them. The character and prospects of the people of God are similar to those of the Jews who could not enter in because of unbelief. Self-sufficiency, self-importance, spiritual pride separate them from God, and he hid his face from them. She continued by saying, there are many who have heard the message of this time and have, been, uh, have seen its results, but they cannot but acknowledge that the work is good. But from fear that some will take extreme positions and that fanaticism may arise in our ranks, they have permitted their imagination to create many obstacles to hinder the advance, advance of the work. I'm trying to rush here, sorry. And they have presented these difficulties to others, expatiating, expatiating on the dangers of accepting the doctrine. They have sought to counteract the influence of the message of truth. Suppose they should succeed in their efforts. What would be the result? The message to arouse a lukewarm church would cease and the testimony exalting the righteousness of Christ would be silenced. The character, the motives, and purposes of the workmen whom God has sent have been and will continue to be misrepresented. One of you came to me afterwards, I know who it was, but one of you came to me afterwards and told me in an experience that one of our retired pastors in the Michigan, from the Michigan Conference, now residing in another state, was sitting in his Sabbath school class and he dared to mention the names of Jones and Wagner and he was asked to leave. Just mentioning the names. Does that tell you anything? She continued by saying, the world is a second Sodom. The end is right upon us, and is it reasonable to think that there is no message to make ready a people to stand in the day of God's preparation? Why is there so little eyesight, so little deep, earnest, heartfelt labor? Why is there so much pulling back? Why is there such a continual cry of peace and safety and no going forward in obedience to the Lord's command? Is the third angel's message to go out in darkness or to lighten the whole earth with its glory? Is the light of God's spirit to be quenched? And the church to be left as destitute of the grace of Christ as the hills of Gilboa were of dew and rain? Wow. She concludes with those stunning words. Some years later, Joan A.T. Jones made this statement, and referring back to that time. He said, when camp meeting time came, we all three visited the camp meetings with a message of righteousness by faith and religious liberty, sometimes all three of us being in the same meeting. This turned the tide with the people and apparently with most of the leading men, but this latter was only apparent. It was never real. For all the time in the general conference committee and amongst others, there was a secret antagonism always carried on. So folks, what I am impressing with you today, this is not the time to stop. I'm leaving you on a little bit of a depressing note. But I do want you to know God's still in charge of His church. God's not done with His work. 
And this wasn't the end of it either. But it does remind us of the very, very, very real battle that we are caught up in. You and I need to be on our knees. We need to be diligent students of the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy. We do need to review our history and make sure that things are abundantly clear because we do not want to make a mistake. We do not want to get it wrong. This time, with God's help, we must get it right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, yes, we live in the days just before Jesus is going to return. And you warned us that in this time, things would not be simple. Not because you're not simple, but because we are complicated. We have complicated this message. We've made it so confusing. We fight over this message. Oh, God, forgive us. And I pray that you will help us to be able to see the clear light of truth that Ellen White spoke of, that was shared in these meetings, in these camp meetings of uh, times gone past, and that that same light will shine upon us again, Lord. Oh, please help us. Help us. Through the Spirit of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.